I want you to imagine a child's 10th birthday. Um, now, I also want you to imagine that an alien arrives and wants to join in on the party. And because you answered the door and let the alien in, um, he's now looking to you to explain what's happening in the room. So you have to be the one that tells him all the events and all this, the random things that are occurring. And he's asking a lot of questions. And he leans in and says things like, why are all these people here? Why is the room decorated with streamers and a banner? Why are they all wearing funny hats? Why does the child keep opening those boxes and bags? And every time you answer him, it seems to make him more confused and also you. The conversation might go something like this. Well, it's her birthday. You mean she's just been born today? No, she was, she was born 10 years ago. So what's special about that? Well, we do this every year. It's, it's just special. What's a year? Okay, well, it's when you, you know, 365 days. Well, it's not for us. <laughs> Never mind. Why are you giving her things? Because it's her birthday. Why do you give people things on their birthday? Because we always do. I, don't, I guess it's to tell them we think that they're special. Isn't everyone special? Well, yes, but on your birthday, you're more extra so special. So why are you wearing those funny hats? Are they special too? Yeah, I mean, I guess they are. I mean, it's to make the day more special. And why are they trying to light that cake on fire? They aren't. Those are candles. But why are you lighting the candles? We always do. I guess it's because it makes the party more special. Now shut up and eat this piece of cake. Birthdays are significant days where we celebrate the life of someone we love. And we have a lot of traditions that we participate in without even knowing where or how or why we do them. Does anybody know why we light a candle on a birthday cake? You might think in your minds to signify the number of years. Well, sure, that's how you understand it, but it's not how the ancient Greeks understood it when they first began the tradition. They were warding off evil spirits. Did you guys know that about birthday candles? Isn't that interesting? Without knowing the how and the why and the where that we get our traditions, sometimes we just happen to do things that seem significant, that seem special, but we don't really know why they are. We can't put into words why they are. But could you imagine a life without birthday parties? A life without wedding receptions? A life without get-togethers with friends to enjoy a special occasion? How boring would it be? And some in the room are laughing right now because they just lived that six, over the past six months. Right? Deep down, we understand the significance of symbolic events or gestures, but it's really hard to put into words what they might communicate. For instance, a military salute a handshake over a new business deal, a family reunion, and of course, the birthday party. These are all things we may do without needing a formal education. Your parents didn't sit you down when you turned one and said, here's what's about to happen. They just let you destroy a cake. And it was awesome, right? Uh, we, we don't need a formal education to understand and to live into the importance of these moments. 
the birthday party in particular says a couple of things. We're glad that you're born. We're glad that you're here. The party joins together the past and the present, and it looks into the future and hopes for more birthdays. There's always one guy or gal at the party who at the end of the birthday song sings, and many more. You know what I'm talking about? There's always that one that does that. I would imagine Damon would be the one. Yeah, because, but it's true though, we do hope for future more birthdays to come because we want this person to be around because they are special to us. And that's why we make birthdays special, both with things that seem meaningless and silly, like those conical hats that we wear or the streamer things that we blow or, you know what I'm talking about, all, all of those things might on on its surface, seem like a silly and meaningless gesture, but at the same time, they contain very special and meaningful uh, importance to the day because they do set apart that day as something that is not ordinary. It's different. It's unique. It's special. Now, Christianity has some of those things embedded within our regular patterns of living. We come together to sing songs. Has anybody wondered why? We listen to sermons. Has anybody wondered why? We pray together. That one might be a little easier to answer as to why, because we're supposed to pray. You know what I'm saying? Why do we give money to the church and to special causes? Why do we dunk people underwater? We put, put these all together. It starts to sound a little strange, what we're doing in here. And it might be really strange to someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior or have some sort of formational learning around these certain events that we do because the reality is that each one of these things I just mentioned have a lot of significance in them when properly understood. When I understand why we're dunking somebody under the water, then I realize, wow, what a phenomenal story they have of God's grace in their life. And it makes me remember my own. And it calls me to action so that I can see others identify with Christ the same way that somebody else has done. But whether it's singing or listening to a talk or watching somebody in the water or eating a small cracker and drinking a little bit of grape juice, these moments, properly understood, are hugely significant for us. Now, we've just spent the last several weeks walking through the covenantal framework of the Bible. Now, that sounds daunting, those two words set together, but it's not. All it means is that the Bible is built around covenants. And pastors walked us through each one, and now we understand rainbows and circumcision. We understand almost too much about circumcision. We understand the Sabbath and those pesky genealogies, and we even now understand baptism. But do we understand our special meal? It's been called the Lord's Supper, it's been called Communion, it's been called the Eucharist, it's been called Mass. There are many names for this one idea that we're shooting at, but we're going to call it Communion. Do we have a grasp on why or where the symbol of Communion came from and why it is so important for each one of us? Do we really know why God wants us to participate regularly in this observance. By a show of hands, if you grew up in church, did you take communion sort of as a kid all the way up until your adulthood? 
Let me just see who's done that. Who's, who's been taking communion for a long time? Most of us in this room. Now, if an alien sat you down and asked, why do you do this? Would you feel comfortable answering that question? And some of you certainly, yeah. I've got a book, papow, I'm going to throw it down, I'm going to read to them from these passages, right? You, you could understand it, but some of us, maybe we just do this and we don't actually understand why. Because we don't understand the significance or the importance or why we should do this meal regularly. So I want us to realize that in light of the new covenant that Pastor began to talk about last week, the new covenant being cut by Jesus' own body and with his own blood, that communion becomes a special meal which links our past, our present, and our future together in Christ. Now we said it's important and it's empowering to know your story. All throughout the series we said it's empowering to know your story and what we've told everybody over and over again is that the story of the Bible is not this disjointed thing that we reference when we want to slam somebody on Facebook, but rather it is our formational story. How we arrive at where we are, how we get Jesus is all framed and spoken of throughout the entire Bible, and so it becomes our story. When you know your story, you know whose you are. And when you know whose you are, you actually begin to understand who you are. You are God's possession, bought at a great price, his very own blood and body. And because of that, you are a child of God. This becomes your identity. This becomes my identity. Baptism becomes a symbol of that new identity that we are adopting. Knowing your identity allows you to face each moment of each day with purpose and intention in living into your role as the image bearer, king priest that you were always supposed to be. Now, does anybody not want to be a king priest? Does anybody not want to live into this um, amazing, I don't know how to describe it, like celestial role that God has given each one of us? We're not mere humans. We are humans, but we're not merely humans. We have God's divine breath in us, his spirit within us. And it calls us to be more than we currently are. And our identity, knowing our identity, knowing whose we are in Christ, knowing that we belong to him and we are his possession, knowing that we're his child, tells us how then we should live because we know what we're about now. So communion is an affirmation of your identity in Christ. It's an affirmation of who you are. It confirms what you're about, what you believe in, and what you will do because of it. Have you ever thought about communion that way? Or have you just taken the thing and went, yeah, yeah, okay, what are we doing? Because I've done that many times. So I don't want to take for granted that any of us automatically understand this important meal, so we're going to spend some time talking through what communion is. It began on the night that Jesus gathered his disciples before his arrest and eventual crucifixion. And he instituted a new observance or a meal to commemorate his death and resurrection life. Have you ever wondered why there's a meal that seems to follow important things or seems to be at the center of important things? You get married, then what do you do? You eat. Well, the bride and the groom don't, but everybody else in the room does. 
right? You eat and you celebrate together. What happens after a student graduates? You go back to the house and you party. You eat, you have food, you hang out together. That's what a graduation party is. Even if it's come and go, mom still put out snacks for everybody. Right? Have you ever wondered why that is? When you sit down to celebrate the birth of a new child, right? You do the baby shower beforehand. What do you do at the baby shower? You eat. It's cupcakes, right? And I don't know what else happens at a baby shower, but you know what I'm saying. You eat. You eat. Have you ever wondered why meals seem to draw people in and gather us? They seem to focus our intention on whatever it is that our focus is supposed to be on in that moment. Meals draw our attention towards the importance of this moment because they stop us from whatever pattern we're in at the moment and force us to look at the people across the table. They force us to communicate, to talk, and to think about the thing that we're observing together. So Jesus sits his disciples down before his arrest, before his crucifixion, and he institutes this new observance to commemorate his death and his resurrection life. Now, it hasn't happened yet, but he knows it is. I think that's fascinating. He sits down to do something new with them, even though it hasn't already happened. When we sit down to do special meals, it's because the thing has happened, generally. But what Jesus does is something brand new here. And the disciples, they prepare for the Passover meal, which was an ancient Jewish, Jewish feast that held great significance. It was a special meal which memorialized the night that the angel of death passed through Egypt, striking down the firstborn of anyone who hadn't placed the blood of a lamb on their doorposts. I don't want to assume you know this story, but the Jews were in captivity for 400 years in Egypt. Pharaoh had subjugated a whole race of people in order to make them do his slave labor. There had been nine plagues where Moses comes to Pharaoh, Moses the great deliverer of the Jewish people, comes to Pharaoh and says to them, let my people... Okay, you guys know this story fairly well. And if you are just smart, you don't know the story, you guessed really great. Good job. Go is the right word. Let my people go. Nine plagues before this final one. And the final one was the most important and deadly of all. The angel of death passes through the nation of Egypt. And whoever had placed the blood of a Passover lamb on their doorposts, the angel of death would then pass over. You guys got it. Now this was the final plague. It broke Pharaoh's hardness of heart, resulting in the Israelites being set free from 400 years of slavery. God commanded then that they observe this feast and gave the reason for why. Exodus chapter 12, verses 24 through 27. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and they worshipped. See, Passover linked the Jews' past, grounded their present, and called their future all together into one evening, into one moment. It reminded them of their story. 
This is who we are. And in fact, when the Passover was uh, observed after this initial one, they, they even set it up to where as they're doing the meal together, whoever the youngest kid was in the room, he would be the one. They like scripted it in because they felt like that was obeying what God said here. So they script in whoever the youngest kid is at the table, he would look up and go, um, why do we do this meal or whatever? And then they would explain the whole story because it's empowering to know your story. It, it, it reminded them of God's great mercy which set them free from slavery and then grounds them in their present reality to recall whose they are. They are God's chosen people, a people God loves so much that he would free from slavery. And it calls their attention to the fact that he is their redeemer and their savior. The Jews celebrated and observed this feast for thousands of years, and Jesus says the same with his disciples. Yet, he updated the feast in a really interesting and new way. Let's read about it in Luke chapter 22. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I, what? For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And while they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Now, the disciples were surprised. They were surprised by how Jesus was changing this traditional feast that hadn't been changed for thousands of years. They certainly understood that there was going to be a new covenant I mean, the prophets had talked about that. We know a new covenant is coming. We understand that that is going to happen, but it's happening now. The new covenant is happening over roast lamb and lots of wine in this sleepy little room together, us, 12, and you. What does the new covenant have to do with Jesus going away and suffering? What's the new covenant? Wasn't it supposed to coincide with us uh, raising the Messiah on our shoulders in victory. So if that's the case, why are we not out destroying these Romans right now and claiming the victory that the new covenant needs? It's why in John's gospel account, if, if you ever read John's gospel, there's like four, three chapters, chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, where the disciples sit around after the Passover meal and they just ask Jesus a bunch of questions because they are so confused Three chapters of dialogue. That's how confused they are. Normally we get like two sentences where Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, or something like that, and it's pretty quick. But we have three chapters of dialogue between the disciples and Jesus because they cannot understand what is happening. They're completely perplexed. And so finally, Jesus tells them this in John chapter 14. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, who's the advocate? whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will what? 
remind you of everything I have said to you. Now, we quote these verses oftentimes to talk about like the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but as soon as you take out these verses from the context of the narrative, you miss what's even happening. Jesus is just so fed up with them. He's like, listen, the Holy Spirit's coming and he's gonna remind you of all this stuff. Golly, quit asking questions. Let's hang out together. Let's have this meal together. Let's, let's have these precious last few moments before I have to go suffer and die. But this is what he tells them, is that the Holy Spirit is going to help them to remember all of these events and all the things that they had talked about. And in the remembering, it's all going to click. Oh, that's why Jesus had to die. Oh, that's why he healed those people that way. Oh, that's why he kept telling the demons to not talk about me. Oh, you get what I'm trying to say. And then after his death and after his resurrection, all of these events begin to click in their minds. They're able to then tell the story of Jesus and bring people into the new family of God cut around a new covenant, which is in Jesus' blood and in his body. The Holy Spirit assists them in remembering, and finally they put it all together in some writings several years later. And thank goodness, because now we understand and know our own story. Because remember, it's empowering to know your story. So let's talk about the bread and the, the wine. Okay? It was wine in the Bible, by the way. It's grape juice for us, because anyways. Jesus used the bread and the wine to signify the importance of his upcoming death. The bread was to be his broken body and the wine his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Now, the Passover lamb was killed and its blood spread on the doorpost so the angel of death would pass over and not judge those that were inside. Jesus' blood, just like the Passover lamb's blood, protects us from the judgment that we deserve because of sin. His blood, like the Passover lamb's, was the beginning of something new. The angel of death broke the power of Pharaoh, the one who held the Jews in slavery. Jesus' blood, likewise, breaks the power of sin and the thing that holds us in slavery, which is death. Because of the Passover lamb's blood, the Jews were made into a new nation, cemented with the law that we read about in Exodus several weeks back. Because of Jesus' blood, now all people, not just an ethnic group of Jews, but all people all over earth and time can now join in on God's kingdom, cemented by a new and better law, love. So the bread and the wine, they are symbols. But man, just saying they're symbols, it doesn't feel like it does it justice. Okay, they're symbols. Certainly they are, but it doesn't quite convey what they mean. It's so hard to put into words, but I'm going to do my best. They are symbols of Jesus' death, which grants us forgiveness through faith in him. They are symbols of our freedom from sin. They are symbols of our ongoing connection through relationship to him. They are symbols of our very real kingdom, which connects you and I to one another. They are symbols of our international connection which transcends geographic, economic, gender, and racial boundaries. There will be people all over the world 
this morning and maybe later on today, whenever their morning happens, who will partake in the Lord's Supper or in communion or in the Eucharist or in the Mass. All over the world, people are recalling the events, using their imagination, obviously, to recall the events in the past of what Jesus has done for us. They are like us, confirming their identity in Christ. They are like us, calling back the story of what happened in the past, hoping for what's in the future and grounding themselves in the present by doing so. They are symbols of resurrection because ultimately his body didn't stay broken and ultimately his blood was not spilled in vain. So yes, they're symbols, but they say so much more than just their symbols. It's why we should take this moment seriously. But it's also why the outward symbol isn't magical. It, it, it literally is a piece of bread. It doesn't literally become anything else. It literally is grape juice for our purposes, wine for others. It literally doesn't become something else when it enters your body. It literally stays those things. But the symbol behind it means something when we engage with it the right way. Um, why do you wear a wedding ring? This isn't literally your marriage. It's a symbol of your marriage, and it signifies your whole history, your past, your present, and it calls for the future. This isn't literally Rachel, my wife. I mean, this is just a tiny symbol of the awesomeness that she is. Do you guys get what I'm trying to say? So I don't literally look at this and go, oh, my marriage. It's so wonderful. I don't do that. No, instead I hug Rachel, and I love Rachel. That, that's what happens. Not, not looking at the symbol to become something that it isn't. Instead, it recalls my mind and my heart to what the actual thing is. So we have to engage with it the right way. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul kind of gives a caution to the early Christian believers and also to us. He says, For Christ, our what lamb? So... That's where we get this, by the way, because Paul's really smart, right? So, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, and we'll just skip down to the bottom there, with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. It's not about the physical thing. It's about what the physical thing recalls our minds and our hearts to do which is to partake in the symbol with sincerity and truth. Without doing it with sincerity and truth, we are taking the meal in an improper way. If I don't sincerely love Rachel, if I don't believe the things she says and also tell her the truth, then this symbol is no good. It doesn't signify anything. It might signify something that it's not supposed to. And the symbol of our meal that we eat together called communion is certainly not supposed to call our minds to anything else but Jesus Christ and his sacrifice he made for us. And it is to call us forward into what we are supposed to do in light of whom he has called us to be, which are his children.
So what is this meal? It's a family celebration. Just like a birthday, it's the moment where we personally and collectively remember Christ's sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. We imagine the weight of our sins that would cause the God of the universe to have to die on our behalf. We imagine that. We imagine the past. We imagine his blood spilled and his body broken for our forgiveness. We also then recall our own lives as they once were. And we glory and we revel in the fact that Christ forgave us even while we were yet still enemies. While we were opposed to, to God, we, he still came for us. This moment also grounds us in this present reality right now. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we are now in the family of Abraham, the family of God. So we remind ourselves to renew our ongoing commitment to Christ so we can leave the building to actually become the hands and feet or the body of Christ that we are called to be. The Catholics call it Mass. It comes from a, uh, a Latin phrase that means to go and do. I think that's a really appropriate word. To go and do. Listen, we call it communion just because that's what we like. We like that phrasing better. But I don't, I don't mind the word mass at all. Because what it's calling the parishioner's mind in the Catholic Church to remember is that you don't just take these elements and then be, be the same person you were. You take these elements and then go, because you remember Christ's sacrifice, his kindness, and his mercy for you, you now go live differently. Because I'm renewing my commitment to Jesus in this moment, I'm now going to go and live as if that commitment is real and impactful within my own life. So it grounds me in my present to actually become the hands and feet that Christ has called me to be. This meal also envisions the future where Christ will finally renew all things at his second coming. He will make good on his promise of recreation that was signaled by his own resurrection. He showed us in his resurrection that we have a sure and certain hope that we will experience the same sort of thing. That our bodies will be brand new, that our spirits and our bodies will be re-knit together and we will live in a new heaven and a new earth where we won't even need a sun and a moon because God himself will be our light. And the idea behind that picture is that he will be in our presence. Our faith will no longer be necessary, only our eyes, because we'll see him face to face. We have a sure and certain hope that the resurrection is real because of what Jesus displayed for us. And we know that we can attain eternal life through Jesus' sacrifice and faith in him. So this meal is important. I hope I've belabored the point. I actually do hope I've belabored the point at this, at this point. I want you to recognize for all the reasons why this meal is important because it holds us together. We call this communion, which comes from the Greek word for sharing. We not only share in what Christ did for me, but also in what Christ did for others in this room and all over our communities and all over the nation and all over the world. It reminds me that I'm not alone. The sin that I experience in my own life, I'm not excluded and I'm not the only person that does that. 
that there are other people who struggle with sin and struggle to seek God and, and are trying their best to pursue him in their lives. What Hebrews tells us is that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who also live in this new covenant. And it reminds me that I, like Paul, took this meal. And I share in his story and I become a part of it and I'm woven into what God is doing through the world, through humanity, and through me. This is an important meal. It brings me together and it brings you together to bow at the feet of Christ who is our true Lord and King. 1 Corinthians 10 says this, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is how many loaves? We who are many are what? For we all share in the one loaf. So this isn't just another Christian-y thing that we do because we're supposed to. No, we're supposed to. Absolutely. But we don't just do it because we're supposed to. There's a reason behind it. Communion is a vital expression of our faith in Christ, our unity with him and one another, and our future hope. Because to know your story is to know whose you are. And when you know whose you are, you'll know who you are. And when you know who you are, you can now live for Christ as he's called us to be. So one of the things that we uh, have introduced the past couple of times that we've done communion is we've done a little bit of a, a reading and response time, which for Baptists is like, whoa, you know what I'm saying? Are we Lutherans now, you know? Like we get really scared when we start doing response and reading times. But listen, the reason that we want to do that is because we find value in, in the repetition of phrases and actions which call our minds toward Jesus and his great sacrifice for us. Now, I know that we're not confessional or creedal peoples, uh, being Baptist, and we're not going to become that. However, in the repetition, we want the truth of God's mercy, the truth of his love, to be ingrained in our minds and our hearts. We want each of us to not come to communion with confusion or a lack of understanding. Instead, we want to do it often and in pattern so the truth begins to settle down into our lives. How do you memorize your favorite song? Well, you listen to it ten times. That's how you do it. Or more if you aren't really a songy person, you know? Maybe a hundred times or whatever. But you do it a lot until it settles down into your mind and into your heart. So, in a moment, we'll read a confession together. Now, the words aren't magic. You don't just get absolved by saying words out loud. You don't just get forgiven of sins by just saying things out loud. What the new covenant shows us is that what God cares about is not our outward action as much as he cares about our inward heart transformation. The new covenant renews our hearts and gives us new minds and hearts to serve him. Now instead of hearts of stone, we have hearts of flesh and his spirit is within us, working in us to become more like Jesus. And so just saying words isn't the important thing but meaning the words that you're saying, pondering the words as we say them out loud, trying to adopt the value and characteristic of those words into your own heart and expression back to God, that's sincerity and truth. 
That's taking of the meal the right way. So we want, to con- we want you to consider the words you're speaking in your own heart as, as Paul calls us to examine ourselves as we participate in the communion. Um, Jeremy and I were, were talking uh, a couple weeks back about what communion meant to us growing up. Um, Jeremy particularly was, was a very frightened uh, person as he would come to communion, probably because he's a great sinner. I'm just kidding, wherever you are. I'm just kidding. Um, he's great. He's wonderful. Uh, he, but he, like me, made communion about a time of confession. Whew, if I eat this unworthily, as Paul says, then God is going to strike me down because there's many of us who have died without, without knowing that it was because of communion. And we were all, I mean, I'm just telling you, I was scared. Jeremy was scared about that because it, now communion becomes more about me confessing and making sure that I do enough Hail Marys and enough confessions in order to make God like me once again so that I can take this piece of bread and piece of grape juice. And now I've taken what communion is supposed to be about, which is about Christ and his sacrifice for me, the fact that he has forgiven me and has placed mercy and forgiveness in my life, and I've made it about my sin and my confession. Do you, do you see how subtle that can be? And so that's what Paul is calling us away from. We're not to make the meal about ourselves And we're not to think that these words can be magic or that these symbols that we eat of are magic and can do anything in and of themselves. No, what they need is a heart motivated for Jesus. They need sincerity and truth. So we're doing kind of a a response and reading time on purpose, the repetition. We want those words to then be in your heart. And we also want to stand on the authority of scriptural promises Because when our hearts are aligned with what we say and what we do, God honors those words. He does. God honors the words of a sincere heart. So don't let these next moments be strange. We want to find the balance and communion of somber reflection and joyous proclamation because it is both. And I remember taking communion as a kid and just being like, you know what I'm saying? Like it was, it was all about how dirty and horrible I was, and so I need to get right with God before I get struck down with lightning or whatever. And it's just not what it's about. But then also on the other end, we don't want to be too, uh, too we don't want to make it trivial. Listen, we're about to rip open the plastic, and everyone in the room is going to snicker because it's very strange. <laughs> it's like when I would teach at youth camp and a moth would fly down, and all the kids would go, you see that moth? It's like it's a moth. Chill out, okay? Listen, you're, we're going to peel the plastic off because of COVID time. We're going to do it this way. And don't let that distract you from the moment. Yes, it can be funny. You can snicker. It's fine. But don't let that distract you from what we're about to do in the importance of this moment because we don't want to take the meal in an unworthy manner. We want to do it with sincerity and truth. So there's danger on either side. You can drive off. Who's driven down a country road before, like a dirt country road? Hey, there's a ditch on either side, isn't there? And, and, and if you drive one way too far, you might fall in the ditch. And if you drive too far on the other way, you might fall equally in a bad situation in the other ditch. Okay, so don't 
don't make the mistake of going one way or the other. Let's try to cut the balance between somber reflection, the fact that I am trying to confess and repent of my sins, but also the fact that I'm to joyfully proclaim and remember what Christ has done in my life. So the structure helps us to stay centered and be both reflective and joyful without taking the meal unworthily. So this is why also, uh, I'll just say this, if you haven't made Jesus your personal savior, if you haven't declared that he's Lord of your life, I would just ask you to not take of the elements. Don't take of the bread and don't take of the juice because this is a family celebration. It's for those who are in the family of God. So here in a moment, we're going to take the, the elements together. I think I've got one here. And uh, we'll begin to open it up and eat of these. But I want you to recall and to remember all of the things that we've talked about so far. This holds our past, our future, and our present together. Would you guys stand with me now? You don't have to take the, the, the elements yet in front of you. You can just leave those for a moment. I'll tell you when. What I'd like to do together first before we, ever, before we ever grab the bread and the juice, what I'd like to do is I'd like to read together a corporate confession of sins. It'll be displayed here up on the screen so we can read this together. I know I talk fast, but I'll go slow so we can all be together. All right. Merciful and almighty God, our heavenly Father, we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed. Together we repent of our sins. We celebrate the forgiveness that we have through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We choose to live as renewed people who reflect your love and goodness. We ask that you grant us the strength to love, obey, and serve you for the glory of your name. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, our great God and King, You have promised us forgiveness of sins for anyone who turns to you and by faith believes in you. Father, I'm asking now that you would call to mind the specific things in our lives that we need to confess and repent of. None of us in the room want to take communion in an unworthy manner. We want to do it just as Paul called us to, with sincerity and with truth. So help us now to align our hearts with your heartbeat. Holy Spirit, move in our minds and our hearts to begin to understand the importance of communion. As we begin to reach out to you and communicate with you about what we need forgiveness of, confirm in our hearts that you have pardoned us, that you have forgiven us, that you have washed our sins in the blood of Christ. Strengthen us to do your will. Confirm in our hearts that you will keep us through eternity because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. So we ask now that you bless the bread and the cup that we're about to eat and drink. We sanctify this bread and this wine We set it apart. We make it unique. We call it holy because it is different and distinct. 
We ask that you would help us to view it that way, not as a trivial thing that we do every few Sundays, but instead an important element of our Christian faith, an important element of our family matters. Help us to not take this in an unworthy manner. Instead, help us to recognize all of the richness that the symbols are meant to call our minds towards. Help us to remember that they represent your sacrifice for us. And help us again to remember today that your great love for us is why we even consider this or do this in the first place. Thank you for your mercy and for your kindness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now let's go ahead and grab the little package that should be sitting in front of your um, seat back in front of you. You can go ahead and remove the top seal where the bread is. Now before we take the bread, we'll make another confession. So you can put that in hand if you like. Let's go ahead and read this together as well. Lord Jesus, you are the bread of life. By your cross and resurrection, you have set us free. You are the Savior of the world. You made the bread. And you can go ahead and peel back the... Uh, Second layer, the juices. And let's read together a proclamation of our common belief. Lord Jesus, when we drink this cup, we proclaim your death, and we dedicate ourselves to your mission until you return in glory. You may drink the juice. Now remember why we do this. We are grounding ourselves in the story of our Lord Jesus. We are imagining the past as we remember his sacrifice. We are simultaneously calling forth our promised future while we firmly plant ourselves in the middle of that great unfolding story and we stir our hearts to faithfully and joyfully obey him once again. We're going to sing a song here in a moment. And I pray that you do that with joy in your heart, knowing that God forgives sins through Jesus Christ, that we are one family linked together and joined through Christ in our common confession in him. We are a family forgiven, a family also with a divine vocation, because this isn't just a symbol intended to do right here and terminate in this moment. Instead, it's a symbol to push us out of the building to serve as Christ called us to as we pursue and fulfill our mission. Let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for communion. Thank you for this special meal. I pray that you were honored in this time. I pray that we took the meal with sincerity and truth and we thank you that you offer us a chance to remember your sacrifice, to call our attentions forward to the future of what you have for us, and also to ground ourselves in this moment as we don't just take this meal and let it end here, but rather it propel us to become more like you and to serve you wherever 
and for whoever we see. Father, thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your kindness. It is your kindness that propels us to repentance. Jesus, we love you. We thank you so much. We thank you that we are now in the family of God. Because we know whose we are, we now know who we are. Help us to live that story. In Jesus' name we pray.